How is everyone? Good. Good to see you all. We're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians for uh, the next few months, so let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to pick it up where we left off uh, late last year. Starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and, de and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we're here with you today, that you've invited us to fellowship with you, the triune God. Thanks for that privilege. Thank you that you love us, that you draw us near to you, that you call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, speak to us now through your word. Give us attentiveness to hear what you want us to hear and to be people of your word that will apply it and walk out and live it. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Belize, that you will continue to sustain them, continue to nourish them, both physically with food and spiritually by your word. Let them continue to look to you as the hope of their salvation. And may we do the same, God. You are truly the only hope of salvation. Thank you for your mercy and grace, which you rain out up upon us abundantly, day after day. We love you, Lord. Amen. So there's different types of love that uh, the Greeks used and, and the Bible writers adopted most of those words uh, to talk about the various uh, descriptions and relationships when it comes to love. One of those words would be Agape, that's the one most people think of when, when you think of love. That usually has to do with uh, a godlike love, an unselfish love. Maybe in the Old Testament, a, a good word in Hebrew for that would be the hesed, God's hesed love, his covenantal love. There's also a couple others, though. There's the eros love, which has more to do with uh, the love between a husband and wife, more of a sexual love. There is also the... Uh, filial love, which is more um, brotherly, sisterly, like between siblings. That's how, that's how uh, Greek writers back then used it when they were talking about like brothers and sisters within a family. They'd use that word philia. That's why, where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. But then there's actually one more that most people don't know um, or never heard of. Does anyone know the fourth one? So you came, you came to be instructed today, also to be exhorted. It's actually storge. Most people haven't heard of that one. That's more of parent to child and child to parent. 
Um, let me just say, though, uh, much has been made about these Greek words, and many word studies have gone haywire by reading um, sometimes too much into these words. Sometimes the biblical writers, when they're talking about God's love, will use the agape and the philia interchangeably. And you can start to run into to problems when you start doing word studies if you are going to always translate agape love as a God-like love, um, especially when you get into the Greek Septuagint. So just be careful with that. Um, but we can learn some insights with the various uses of love. It's unfortunate that our English language, at least where it is at today, we just have kind of like one word, and so then we modify our word love with various adjectives. But we just have the one. I want to look at um, this passage today and note a few things. And really, the, the, term, the, the title of my sermon today is Unity Through Love. Unity Through Love. And if you look back in, in verse 9, Paul's going to end up mentioning two different types of love here. He starts out saying, now concerning brotherly love, which type of love is that? The philia. So now concerning the brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. There he brings in the agape. So he's talking about the philia and the agape. Now it's interesting to note that he says you have no need for anyone to write to you. But then what does Paul do? He writes to them. It's actually a, a figure of speech called a paralipsis. Not a pair of lips, but a pair of lipses. It's the, <clears throat> when you say you won't talk about a subject, but then you do. And usually the function is to deliberately emphasize or assert an idea by pretending to ignore it or pass over it. An example might be, we won't mention your unpaid debts. Well, you just did, right? Or... We won't bring up your misconduct last night at the party. Well, you just did. So Paul is instructing them on love. And, and why does he want to discuss this topic? Because he wants to take them deeper into this idea of what love truly looks like. What does love really look like when it comes to believers in Christ? So he goes on. At the end of verse 9, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Do, do all your versions say taught by God? Okay. Um, take a sip of that coffee if you got it, because I need y'all to wake up a little bit. Taught by God. That's actually a word there. In, in, our, in our English, it's taught by God, three words. That's just one word in the Greek, and Paul actually coined that term. Be, you could translate it probably more literally, God taught. You have been God taught to love one another. It doesn't actually exist in Greek literature until Paul writes it to the Thessalonians. He takes two words and kind of conjoins them together. Now, th doing this, I mean, if you ever came across a word before that you weren't familiar with, and some of you sometimes complain about that regarding my sermons, um, what would you do? You'd probably pause and try to figure out what does that word mean, especially if it was a new word, right? Some of you older people, when these new slang terms come up, you're like scratching your head sometimes, right? Okay, that's what your phone app is for. There actually is an app for things like that. Feel free to use it. But he takes these two words 
and, and puts them together. And the Thessalonians would have paused and be like, what, what's he trying to get at here? God taught, like, what does that mean? Now, this is interesting because here's what it says in Hebrews 5. <clears throat> For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. <clears throat> the Hebrews needed someone to teach them. The letter, the writer to the letter of the Hebrews is like, you actually need a teacher. But here, Paul's saying on, on this issue, you've already been taught by none other than God himself. And if you're going to have a teacher, God himself is by far the best teacher to have. And God wants to instruct us, train us, teach us. He wants to instill truth into us. We all need to let the Lord be our teacher, and we need to let the Lord truly be our teacher. But what happens? Like, we have the greatest teacher available to us. God himself wants to instruct us. And what do we do at times? With his word. How do we treat it? We just discard it. We push it to the side. God's trying to teach us something, and we push it to the side. We need to get to a point... When we're hearing the word of the Lord, we need to be asking ourselves, what is the Lord teaching me in this? Don't you want to be God-taught? Like, God uses his body. That's what he says in Ephesians, right? He gives uh, prophets, he gives teachers, he gives evangelists. What's the purpose? To build up the body. To build up the body. But those people are, are, are God's mouthpiece to speak truths to us. And each one of you, if you're a believer, each one of you is a mouthpiece of God. You're a mouthpiece. And God wants to use you to speak truth into other people's lives. For unbelievers, what is that? That means bringing them the gospel, right? And for believers, what is that? That could be uh, encouragement, exhortation, even correction or rebuke. But he wants to use you to speak biblical truth to others. I remember we had a... Um, I'm, I'm, on, I'm, the, I'm on a committee. I'm actually the head of the committee for uh, the St. Louis Knights, uh, their coaching committee. So we are in charge of putting different coaches in place for basketball, um, actually for track, for cheerleading, all sorts of stuff. But we were interviewing one coach, and um, just over and over as we're asking him questions and interviewing him, I, like it was just like Jesus talk in a, in a positive, encouraging way the whole time. All these things were about like how God had worked in his life, what God was doing in his life, how God had been gracious to him in, in different circumstances. And afterwards, I was talking with another member on the committee, and, and, the, and, and the member of the committee was like, man, I need to, I need to step up my, my conversational Jesus talk. And I was, I was kind of like, like, you know, like, explain that, like, you know, kind of flush that out for me. And he's like, you know, we just saw this guy, like, he was basically sharing with us the whole time the different good things that God had done in a very gracious and loving way. And I need to adopt that myself. Just naturally, when I'm in conversation, how can I work that conversation in a way that I'm glorifying the Lord, that I'm bringing up Jesus into the conversation. Not in some awkward way, but just talking about what God's doing in my life. That, that's how we need to be as well. The interesting thing to note here is Paul sees this idea of being God-taught 
as an eschatological realization. What do I mean by that? Look at Isaiah 54. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read for just a bit because I want you to see the context here. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose, I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This, many theologians acknowledge, is God prophesying through Isaiah this coming covenant, this eternal covenant of peace that is mentioned in verse 10. He says, my covenant of peace shall not be removed. And when does that occur? Well, the fulfillment of it occurs when Christ returns. But when was the dawning of that new age? At the resurrection of Christ. That's the dawning of it. That's when the, 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 the curtain is torn. Even the cloud that covered the face of the earth signified and was God's presence just like in the temple itself. He had a cloud 
over the mercy seat. So that new age is here. And Paul is tying in this Isaiah passage when he says in verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. The wording is similar in the Greek Old Testament. He's tying that in and he's, and he's letting the Thessalonians know that the age, that this Isaiah 54 passage, that age to come was at the dawn with them. God was there. And it also brings to mind passages like John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you what? All things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It also calls to mind 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through whom? The Spirit. He's revealed it through the Spirit. And it goes on, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. If we want to be taught by God, we have to be a, a spiritual person, not a natural person. First Corinthians goes on, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If we want to hear from the Lord, we have to have his spirit. <clears throat> Back in 1 Thessalonians, that's what Paul gives us a glimpse of in the very previous verse when he says, God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, why do we need the spirit? So that we can be truly taught by God. So that we aren't the natural man, but we are the spiritual man. This is a supernatural working of God in our hearts. This is what the psalmist says. Actually, turn there. Psalm 16. I want you to see it. This is David, and he says in verse 7, Psalm 16, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The Lord was his teacher. He goes on. In the night also, my heart instructs me. And here's the thing. God has not simply taught them that they ought to love one another. He's not just filling them on a theology of love. We need that. We need the instruction. We need the teaching. But he has taught them with the result that they actually practice the love. We see that as he goes on to compliment them and how they've handled themselves within their own congregation and all of Macedonia. The love has spread out. That's why he says in verse 10, back in 1 Thessalonians, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers in Macedonia. They're practicing it. Friends, a, a sure sign of your faith is not that you know biblical truth. A sure sign of your faith is that you actually know those biblical truths and then you actually practice them. It's not enough to know. You have to practice it. So you not only know the truth, you actually Act on the truth. Think of James chapter 1. Be doers of the word. And not only what? Hearers. And then look what he says. Not hearers only deceiving yourselves. If you just hear the word, you can, you can, hear, you can hear this word right now. You can hear this sermon. You can listen to podcasts. You can read 
books that have great teaching. But if you're just hearing it and you're not doing it, God says you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. So part one, yes, is receiving it, but part two is doing it. And you have to have both parts. What did Jesus say in John 14? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not keep reading my word. Not keep hearing it. No, you'll obey it. You'll do something about it. So notice what we have here. These are God-ordained truths that Paul is instructing the Thessalonians with. He's teaching them. These words are not simply the words of men. They are God's words, and he's ordained them. And what is the emphasis of this particular truth of love? Because I want you to catch this, because you can miss it. The particular emphasis here, it was a mutual love. That's really the idea behind philia. Agape is more this selfish love that you love others regardless of what happens back. But philia, it's like this mutual thing. Like, I love you, you love me. So there's mutuality there. It was a fond affection, a brotherly love, a family love. And having this type of love, catch this, was intended to create a new sense of identity and commitment among people who had no basis for a mutual relation prior to their conversion to Christ. All right, did you catch that? Intended to create a new sense of identity and commitment. We are brothers and sisters. That's the idea. Truly, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Galatians 3 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male and female, for you're all all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing, friends. For us, we don't have the issue, praise God, of slave or free today in this country. We don't really even have the issue of Jew or Gentile. That's not the dividing line for us. No, for us, we have a dividing line of contemporary worship or traditional worship. We let that divide us. For us, it's public schooled, private schooled, or homeschooled. We let that divide us. For us, it's white collar or blue collar. We let that divide us. Or it's Calvinist or Arminian. We let that divide us. None of that should impede our love and unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. If it does, you've, you've exalted something else above Christ himself. If someone is truly a brother or sister indeed, then we truly love them indeed. And here's the thing. The world should scratch its head and say, how do you go to the same church as that person? They should be confounded that people from different walks of life can come together and do life. Not just come here for 90 minutes on a Sunday, but actually do life together. They can minister to one another. They can speak truth to one another. They can encourage one another. They can actually have friendships with one another. That should confound the world. And that, that's kind of the book that we're going through really is emphasizing that in our life groups. That this community, this unity in community, really is God wrought. He is the one that brings it about. We can't bring it about. If we can bring it about, it's, it's not a God. 
when he brings it about, it is truly a thing from him, and it truly confounds the world. You know, fostering this unity, it actually starts, when we talk about the church, fostering this unity, it starts in the pulpits. And friends, we need, we need a reformation in the pulpits. We need a reformation in the house of God. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. Do you want to be ashamed of the gospel? And I don't want to be ashamed of what the gospel holds dear. If the gospel, if the word, if God himself holds something dear, that needs to be dear to us. Whatever it is, whatever our thoughts, if God holds it dear, then we hold it dear. And one of the first things we need is, you know what? We need pastors that aren't saved to get saved. There are pastors that don't believe in the saving atonement of Christ. They don't believe in the finished work of Jesus. They themselves have entrusted in Christ. I've met some of them. They need salvation. There's a representative from, from Missouri. He's actually an ordained pastor, but he's a representative in the House of Representatives. He opened Congress. You probably heard about part of this. And when he finished his prayer, he said, Amen and a women. But, <clears throat> which was not very funny. Uh, but the thing that actually bothered me more was how he ended it right before that. Because this is how he ended his prayer. This is an ordained pastor at a church in Missouri. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. Friends, that's not being the light. That's tarnishing the light. That's not being the light. That, that's dimming the light. And we need foolishness like this to stop. We need foolishness like this to be repented of. And sadly, his denomination will do nothing about it. But what's the idea that he's giving, actually, to all Americans? Pray to whomever you want, whatever God that may be. I mean, that's really what he said. And his church and his denomination is fine with that. Do you know what Jesus calls a church like that? A synagogue of Satan. Revelation. A synagogue of Satan. And when a church is okay with doctrine like that, it's really not a church anymore. It's a so-called church. And a pastor like that, Jesus calls him a blind guide. He's blindly leading other people. He calls him a hypocrite. The second thing we need is we need pastors that say the right words to actually live those words. And this past year, we saw two great pastors, uh, great, in, I should say, in terms of their popularity, uh, end up falling into grievous sin. Uh, the New York pastor of the Hillsong Church in New York ended up committing adultery. With a Muslim woman, not that that makes it any worse, but. And then Ravi Zacharias. It was revealed by his own ministry. After an investigation, they came out and acknowledged that he had committed grievous sexual sin. Great damage has been wrought on the church of God by just these two men's sinful actions. 
Each one of us, we need to get rid of any sin that resides within us. And when we see something like that, while we should be disappointed, and I've been greatly disappointed by the revelations of Ravi's sin, it should be a wake-up call for us to get rid of our own sin, especially that which is hidden. Because the damage that you are doing cannot be understated. We need to repent. Third, we need pastors that are saved to preach the Bible. You know, many church services today are a concert with a 30-minute TED Talk. That just doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. And we need pastors that will preach the Bible, including verboten topics like abortion, money, sex, to name a few. And here's the thing. You can actually tell a lot about a church by what comes from the pulpit. you agree? But you know what else? You can tell a lot about a church by what doesn't come from the pulpit. Because churches can have their handbooks and say all sorts of great things and all sorts of stands that they've taken. But if the pastor never preaches on those topics, then you have to wonder, is that topic really important to that church? Is it really important even to that pastor? So we need pastors that fear God more than they fear man. We need pastors with backbones. We need pastors with boldness. And they need to proclaim, support, and defend ardently, wholeheartedly, and abashedly the whole counsel of God. All of it. And pray those things for me, please. And when you hear of a pastor doing that, you say to them, well done, because it's not easy. I had someone uh, just a couple days ago, I was at a basketball game, and I was talking with another pastor. And he was asking me about some of the different things and how we've handled some of the different challenges with the coronavirus and different guidelines that we've, we've put in place. And um, he complimented us on, on trying to navigate the challenging waters. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, some of these things weren't easy. And he was like, did you get some pushback on some of those things? I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't want to take the path of least resistance. I don't want to take the path of least resistance. I don't want to just take, well, this path here will get me the least amount of pushback. That's like, if you just always do that, that's like a, a faux peace that you're creating. And, and that's a faux peace you're creating within your church. And, and leaders of all sizes and stripes have to make challenging decisions. They have to make challenging decisions. And one thing you will learn when you're in leadership is you will never please everyone. And since you're not going to please everyone, you might as well do what God wants you to do and do the right thing. Now, it might upset more people than less. You might have more of a contingent that aren't happy. But friends, like seriously, are we that concerned with the popularity of ourselves? I mean, each one of us has to stand before God someday. 
I have to stand before God someday. You have to stand before God someday. We have to account for the different areas that he's given us influence and authority over. And each one of us has areas of influence. Each one of us has authority. Even though for some of us, if, if, especially if you're younger, it may might just be little authority. But he's given us influence, and we're going to have to account for that. I heard this quote the other day by a well-known pastor. He said, music bypasses... Now, I don't agree with this, but let me just preface it, okay? Music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers, and when the anointing of God is on a song, people would begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. I mean, like, what kind of dribble is that? I mean, that sound, at first you're like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. No, not really. But here's the thing, I was kind of thinking about this a little bit. Um, you realize that he was actually instructing people if he really wanted to be true to, to his very own quote, he should have sung it, right? His music bypasses the intellectual barriers, and when the anointing of God is on a song, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. So maybe he had people there that day that wouldn't have believed that quote, but if he would have sung it, they would have been more open to it. That's, that's weird, okay? And it was also sadly disappointing on, on many levels, those who prophesied that Trump would be reelected. Now, one, I personally have a problem when you do prophecies that are like 50-50. No, seriously. I mean, you got Biden, you got Trump. So, I mean, I just roll the dice. 50% of the time, you're going to be right. That's not really going out on a limb. These leaders that did that, they need to repent. And I have a list right here of all the leaders that have repented so far. Okay? And many did that. And they have shamed the name of Christ. And I would have at least an, an ounce of respect for them if they would repent of their false prophecy. One young man posted online that he'd been telling his family, none of whom were believers, that Trump would be reelected based on the words of the prophet. And he thought it would, this is, you know, after the election and with, you know, the last basically month, he thought it would glorify the Lord when Trump was miraculously inaugurated. And he said now he doesn't even think he can ever talk to his family about the Lord again. You know, when I first got saved, I remember sitting down with my pastor at the church I grew up in. And I had like 20 or 30 questions I wanted to ask him. And one of the questions was on abortion. What, what do you believe and what does this church believe about abortion and he was like you know some some people are really against it but some people are really really for it they're very pro-choice some people are very against it they're very pro-life and he said I, I found that the safest route is to take a middle road to try to keep both sides happy that's not a shepherd that's a hireling and one of the Democratic candidates running for president this past year, he argued that abortion was okay according to the Bible. That, that's why pastors need to address, for many reasons, but this right here is one reason pastors need to address cultural issues because if they don't, other people like this Democratic candidate will do the job for them. And in this case, they'll do a lousy job. 
So if people are hearing these things and there's no one to push back, there's no one to set the record straight, what's going to happen? They'll end up believing it. They'll be swayed because they want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. We have to be careful of our own ears. Proverbs 29 says, in verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. And this is true for each one of us. If we want reformation in the pulpits, if we want reformation in the churches, then we need it in our own lives. We can't say, oh, I want it there, and then not want it here. And we can't cry about how it's not there when maybe we don't even really have it here. We need to make sure that we have our own little reformation going on in our heart. And we need to cry out for that reformation, for God to revive us, for God to speak truth to us, for God to mold and shape our heart, and that we are willing to let him do that. Unity and community, that's our our current theme and focus in this church. That doesn't mean diversity of thought is not possible. Of course not. It's very possible. We can have unity amidst diversity. And it's easy to have unity at a distance. It's easy to have unity for 90 minutes on Sunday morning. It's easy to have unity apart from others. But the unity that Paul is stressing here, that philia community, where people walk in love with one another, that comes from God himself. And that's just not like, hey, man, if, if that kind of happens in your church, like, that's a good thing. Now, God, God is emphasizing through his spirit here, that's how he has set up this new community of sorts. For it to be spirit-filled in all sorts of walks of life. Think of the Thessalonians. I mean, he even talks about it. He had Jews in there that had gotten saved. He had Worshippers of all sorts of various gods. I mean, they had a whole pantheon of gods. And all these people have been saved, coming from all sorts of walks of life. You read through the scriptures. Some of them had tons of riches. They were meeting in house churches. Not everyone even really had a house to live in. Some were rich, some were poor. James talks about that. The, the poor person comes among you, right? What's he talking about there? He's talking about unity. Walking in love towards one another. The poor person comes in, how do you treat them? This person that doesn't seem to fit in comes in. If they have Christ, they should fit right in. They should fit right in. And may it be so here in our midst. We have a unity in our community. That truly takes a supernatural love from above. That truly takes God himself teaching us, filling us with his spirit to bring that about. Friends, that's what we strive for. That's what we should strive for. Let's be different from the world. Let's let God do something that truly God says, I can only do that. Then we know it truly is a work of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that our ears would receive truth and block out falseness, that we would see, receive the words of life and block out the words of death, that there would be 
in each one of us a desire for real community in our midst. And Father, we ask that you would continue to grant that, you would continue to make it more and more abundant here among us. That people from various walks of life could come in and know they belong. Know that they can flourish. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We acknowledge none of these things we can do without you. Lord, help each one of us where we've fallen short. I pray for anyone here who might have hidden sin, that they'd repent of it and deal with it, that you'd convict them. They'd bring it into the light before it's brought into the light some other way. Give us mercy, Father. Jesus, we thank you that it's because of you we are at the dawn of the new age, that your death and resurrection opened up that promise of the covenant of peace. Peace with the Father. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here that might not have peace with you. Anyone who has not trusted in you and your Son, that you would today have them to trust in you, to be forgiven of their sins, to know that you are good, that you will walk with them, that you will be the one that cleanses them and fills them with your spirit. Give them the gift of eternal life. And Lord, we thank you that all things are worked for your glory, for the good of those who love you. We love you truly. Amen.